Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Do you love history but hate when it's stuffy and boring? Well, look no further and join me, Katie Charlwood, your friend the neighborhood social scientist and reader of books, as I delve into unsolved historical mysteries, murders by gaslight, and of course, women who have been misrepresented through all time. On Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries. Of curiosities. Of oddities. Join Pat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange... The Bizarre, The Unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. As we're getting ready to start recording this podcast, you're bringing the pugs into the room and getting them up on the bed and getting them settled down and having a little argument with them. And I heard you uh, utter this sentence. Stop it. You've already had your cheese, dickbag. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm pretty sure that's a sentence you rarely utter. I love it when we find ourselves saying things that we've never said before. It's like a perfect moment. It is a perfect moment when you know that that sentence may not have ever been said before by anyone ever. I went to pick my sister up years ago at uh, a hotel room and she had her little her kids with her who were pretty young at the time. And she uttered this phrase, if you put your pants on, I'll give you some fresca. I'm pretty sure that's one of those perfect moment sentences as well. I love it. Well, here we are. I believe this is what, our 89th episode of the Box of Oddities. Mm -hmm. And um, it's amazing to me that we're coming up on our one year anniversary, not too far away. In fact, I believe it's, it's one week after our live show in Nashville at Zany's. That's right. And it's been a, a, a whirlwind, wind, whirl, whirlwind, if you will. Uh, it seems like it's been going on for longer than a year, but it's it's amazing everything that's happened this year and, and how many amazing conversations we've had and people we've met. And I'm just, I'm overwhelmed with how incredible this last year has been. Yeah. And if you're one of the people joining us in Nashville, looking forward to uh, meeting you face to face, tickets are still available. The general admission ones, of course, theboxofoddities.com. I came across this article and I had never heard this before. It is pretty weird. There was a guy in the 17th century, the 1600s, who believed that not only were there aliens living on the moon, but that we needed to start finding out a way to get there so that we could uh, we could trade goods with them. Oh, yeah. So he knew he had some pretty good insight. 
What kind of goods do they have? I he need did to not, know. He did not say what kind of goods. It's a long way to go for goods. And uh, I just think that you got to know that the goods are good. Yeah, that's true. Before you start making moon treks. Yeah, you don't want to be saddled with uh, subpar lunar goods. No, I mean, I'm resentful that I have to go to the other grocery store to get the Wobers mustard that I like so much. <laughs> Why don't they sell it at this grocery store right here? This guy who had these ideas was John Wilkins. He was an Anglican clergy and one of the founders of natural theology. And that was the theology that things in science could be real and still not contradict the existence of God. Okay. So who is this guy that thinks it would be a good idea to, I don't know, maybe build a giant catapult and um, and hurl people toward the moon in order to uh, deal for lunar goods? His name was John Wilkins. He was not some kind of, you know, crazy guy. He was not some sort of uh, dude, that eccentric guy who lived on the edge of the village that people taunted. He was actually the brother-in-law of Oliver Cromwell. Yes, and uh, Oliver Cromwell, of course, uh, one of the more controversial figures in the history of uh, Britain. After the English Civil War and the execution of King Charles I, he established himself as Lord Protector of the Commonwealth of England, Scotland, and Ireland. And John Wilkins married uh, Oliver Cromwell's sister, Robina, in uh, 1656. John Wilkins was an incredibly intelligent guy. He was a polymath. And uh, one of the rare intellectuals in the 17th century who attended both Cambridge and Oxford. I don't know what polymath means. It means uh, he was really good at a lot of different things. A student of many of many topics, of many subjects. He was an intellectual who knew a lot about a lot. Okay. He knew a lot of things. Okay, cool. So he married Rabina, the younger sister of Cromwell, who led the faction in the English Civil War. Well, that temporarily removed the British royal family from power. Of course, when the royal family got back in power, they were pissed. Sure. And they were pissed at uh, not only Oliver Cromwell, who paid an ultimate price for it, but but Wilkins as well. And you can understand why. Sure, your brother-in-law killed one of our people and then threw us out of the palace. So it destroyed his reputation with the monarchy of England. Still, he was able to gradually uh, restore his position through his, his works in the church and his scientific research, he also founded the Royal Society and acquired the respected position of Bishop of Chester. This was all after the uh, royal family got back in again. Oh, okay. So he was able to mend some fences there. Well, that's good. But the most interesting thing that he was involved in was the possibility of space travel. This according to Vintage News and also Wired.com. He believed that the moon and the planets of the solar system were all inhabited. Well, why wouldn't you? I mean, we live on a planet and it's inhabited. He postulated that uh, space travel could be beneficial to the English economy because people of Earth could, you know, go up to uh, the moon and, and trade goods with extraterrestrial societies. Now, again, this is like 1640 or something. Mm -hmm. That's pretty forward thinking. Sure. 400 years ago. Pretty progressive within the context of uh, 17th century philosophy. Now, he wrote a couple of books. One was uh, this, The Discovery of a World in the Moon. Uh, that was from 1638. And he also wrote A Discourse Concerning a New Planet in 1640. Now, where did he get his ideas from? Because, I mean, that's a lot of 
of of noggin work yeah. on something that they didn't have anything to pull from at that time. Really, think about about that time period. This is a time period where people took baths, you know, like once a season. Sure. <laughs> um, the idea going to the moon was so forward thinking for the time, certainly for, for society in general, but even for the intellectual aristocratic society. Right. He must have been looked at as like a madman in many ways. Oh, yeah. If it weren't for his um, his status and his well-known intellectual capacity, he would have just been looked at as a, a village idiot. Right. Or, or locked up. Because I'm sure that in some way that, that his concepts were insulting to someone in power. Again, he was responsible for uh, natural theology and really kind of pioneered the idea that, hey, science is not of the devil. Right. You know, we can experiment and learn things about science and it doesn't necessarily contradict our religious beliefs. Okay. Because he was a deeply pious man in many ways. Again, he was the Bishop of Chester. Was it Chester? Mm -hmm. Because when you said uh, bishop and chess... I, you know, I was like, oh, that's funny. And then you said, tur, and I went, oh, now he believed that uh, we were all anchored to the earth by some sort of mystical magnetism. This was before gravity. This was before Newton starting to understand the laws of gravity. He believed that people and animals and plants were all somehow magnetically stuck to earth. And if we were able to find a way to get 20 miles of altitude between us and, and the earth, that it would start to pull away from the uh, the magnetic effect, and we'd be able to just kind of float toward the moon. I mean, again, where what where what is he basing this on? He's it's where all, did twenty miles yeah, come from? I wondered the what? same thing. I think he's just guessing, but he wrote uh-huh. he wrote it as uh, as if it were fact. And I'll I'll read you a little excerpt from one of his books here oh, in geez. in a moment. But really, he wasn't too far off. It's not m- magnetic. No, it's true. I I I too believe that there is some sort of magnetism that holds me to the couch when I'm in the midst <laughs> of a Netflix marathon. Uh-huh. I get it. I have watched 17 episodes of Forensic Files in a row, and never once did you float toward the moon. So he thought. If we could reach an altitude of 20 miles, we'd be free from this magnetic field Mm -hmm. and we'd be able to fly through space. Okay, so what about the whole breathing in space thing? His hypothesis was that it wouldn't be a problem uh, as space travelers would soon grow accustomed to the pure air that was, quote, breathed by angels. And he believed that angels inhabited the vast space between... uh, between planets. And in fact, at one point he was uh, thinking that he would need to get one of these angels to help like to pilot his craft. Sure. Yeah. Some of his ideas were kind of out there. Well, certainly for the time, all of his ideas were out there. But the basic idea of space travel wasn't too far off from what what actually took place. It's his idea of breaking free from the atmosphere and uh, gravitational pull was pretty much spot on. It was certainly more than 20 miles, but but he had the right idea and it wasn't gravity. It was magnetic in his mind. And he believed that all of air 
be it within our atmosphere or in space, mm-hmm. was breathable. It was just cleaner up there. It was, he, yeah. He thought it was purer in in space, sure. and that like climbing a mountain, it would just kind of take a while to acclimate oh, oneself. The altitude. Yeah, <laughs> sure. Yeah, and as far as getting an angel to uh, pilot his craft, mm-hmm. um, he he said it didn't matter if it was a, a good angel or a bad angel. They all have piloting skills, apparently. Just like uh, good Janets and bad Janets have the same skill sets. And you often can't tell them apart. Right. Like the good Janet and the bad Janet. People are wondering, what the fork are you talking about? Yeah, they know. So even though this was the 17th century, you know, the, the early to mid 1600s, and as I mentioned, society was at a point where they thought that, you know, one shower a season was probably good enough. There was some remarkable scientific discovery during that period, of course. He became consumed by these ideas. Now he had to actually figure out how to build a craft that would uh, get him to the moon. And again, several hundred years before even conventional vehicles like cars or airplanes were uh, commonplace. But he explained that flight may well be within the capabilities of mankind. He merely needed the aid of a flying machine piloted by either a good or a bad angel. And he talks about how in the 11th century, there were uh, monks who allegedly had built some sort of flying craft. From descriptions, it really would have been more of a glider, but he didn't differentiate the difference between gliding, gliding and powered flight. How would you even begin to build a craft like that? Because you don't, you don't know how much leg space an angel is going to need. And angels notoriously are long-legged. Now, he was the warden of Oxford's Wadham College, and he had access to the vast, quote, inventor's garden, which contained the likes of, uh, there was a rainbow-making device that had been developed, a statue that could speak. I love this idea. A glass beehive that you could watch the colony in action, kind of like an ant farm, but with bees. Yeah, they have those. Apparently, it was invented there in the 16th century. Very neat. He worked with a a natural philosopher, Robert Hooke. The pair worked on various plans and prototypes for different flying machines, None of which, needless to say, ever ever made it to the moon, but some of them were really quite forward-thinking. I mentioned that he had written a couple of books. One was The Discovery of a World in the Moon by John Wilkins. And these are some of the propositions that begin his book. Number one, quote, that the strangeness of this opinion is no sufficient reason why it should be rejected, because other certain truths have been formally esteemed ridiculous and great absurdities entertained by common consent. He was right about that. Yeah. That a plurality of worlds doth not contradict any principle or reason of faith. Proposition three, that the heavens do not consist of any such pure matter which can privilege them from the like change and corruption as these inferior bodies are liable unto. Proposition four, that the moon is a solid, compacted body. Number five, that the moon hath not any light of her own. One of these things, he's right on the money. Right, yeah. Because back then, they thought the general consensus was, certainly by commoners, that the moon... It was illuminated. It was illuminated by itself. Proposition six, that there is a world in the moon hath been the direct opinion of many ancient with some modern mathematicians and may probably be deduced from the tenets of others. Proposition seven, that those spots and brighter parts which are seen by sight may be distinguished in the moon, does show the difference betwixt the sea and the land in that other world. 
And that was, of course, a, a popular theory because you could see you could, the moon. Yeah, you could see the bright spots and the dark spots, and you know, from a distance, it would be easy to deduce that those were oceans. And that was that was kind of a popular theory. He was one of the first people to put that forward. Proposition eight: the spots represent the sea, and the brighter parts, the land. Proposition nine: there are high mountains, deep valleys, and spacious plains in the body of the moon. Again, right on the money there. Proposition 10, that there is a atmosphere or an orb of gross vaporous air immediately encompassing the body of the moon. Proposition 11, that as their world is our moon, so our world is their moon. Proposition 12, that tis probable there may be such meteors belonging to that world in the moon as there are with us. Proposition 13, that tis probable there may be inhabitants in this other world. But of what kind, we are uncertain. You know, he seemed to be so certain about certain other things, and I just said certain a lot of times. But it surprises (laughs) me that he didn't have a better conjecture as to what other life forms meant. Well, at the time, that was really kind of a revolutionary idea. He certainly wasn't imagining little green men or what we think of when we think of aliens, like those little gray guys. It's hard to say. He probably thought they just kind of looked like us. Well, they're hardly little. So in the decades to come, his partner, Robert Hooke, and uh, another guy, Robert Boyle, would demonstrate that space was actually a vacuum. So he was just before the point where they discovered that space was a vacuum. And of course, the knowledge and the understanding of the force of gravity would uh, greatly improve when uh, Newton came along. So with this new information in hand, Wilkins was forced to concede that space travel simply wasn't possible in the 1600s. But he said, again, so many things in the past were deemed ridiculous and impossible, and today we do them. Mm. And it's the same now. So when we talk about things like time travel today, how that's impossible. Yeah, it is with our technology today, but really the idea of going to the moon in the 1600s was just as outrageous, if not more so. Right. When you look at it in comparison to what they were capable of versus what we are capable of, our learning is, what's that word? Where it feeds off of itself and becomes... Exponential? Yes. No, you're you're exactly right. It's It's no more... Uh, outrageous than the idea that we could end up on the moon. So his ideas at the time probably just seemed crazy, and they certainly, some of them seem eccentric to us in in our time, but there's no doubt that uh, he had a brilliant mind and that it did pave the way for space travel as we know it today. Of course, we never landed on the moon until 1969, but the seed was planted. Allegedly. Allegedly. (laughs) Thanks, Stanley Kubrick. But the seed was was planted by this guy in the 17th century, John Wilkins, a visionary and perhaps a little bit of a nut job, but a well-meaning one. Right. I like that he's all, I'm just going to come up with these incredible theories. And also, by the way, we're going to set up a farmer's market on the moon and we're going to exchange goods. (laughs) Uh, We'll give them corn and they will give us moon vegetables. Like, he seemed to have some very specific ideas about what we could do with these hypothetical creatures on this hypothetical land mass, which at that time, they weren't even sure that it was a solid, you know, nugget. Right. He was convinced it was, but yeah. yeah. That's a lot. Here's what appears to be a lithograph from that time period about a proposed method of getting to the moon. Oh, it's a sail, sail, it's a chained, 
Oh. Yeah. I, yeah. How are we getting those chains to the moon in the first place? That's an excellent question. This doesn't make any the sense. The moon is attached to the earth by two chains, and there's a boat with a sail on it, and the wheels have little cogs that fit into the chain, mm-hmm. and the wind supposedly would propel you to the moon and back again. Mm. And it appears to be piloted by either a clown or a hobo in this photo. Oh, look, and I didn't notice this. There are actually bellows in the back, too, to create wind. Okay. That makes All right. much well, more sense. Okay, they had that figured out then. Though I did see an ingenious plan the other day. Uh, someone was trying to get their couch out of their second story uh, <laughs> patio doors. Uh-huh. And so they ran two lengths of rope uh, from the deck all the way down to the ground and then just kind of set the couch on top of those ropes and then just kind of shoved it. And it went sh- down to the ground. And it worked. It worked. Yeah. See, that has all the makings of a Darwin Award. Oh, for sure. Someone could have died. But they did pull that one off. (laughs) Good on them. So there you have it. John Wilkins, 17th century space explorer, visionary guy with really cool looking hair. Oh, he had cool hair? Yeah. We didn't even talk about that. Oh, that's one of the things that- How did you skip his cool hair? He had one of those big, like, powdered wigs. And that was actually, I forgot to mention that the last episode when we were talking about fashion trends, the Mm -hmm. big powdered wigs. Yeah. Those became fashionable because of uh, King Louis, the 13th or 14th. I don't remember. He had syphilis and all of his hair fell out. Yeah. And so he wore these these wigs. But the syphilis also really made him smell bad. Yeah. He would powder his wig with uh, with scented powder, even though this wig with lilac smelling powder in it was designed to hide his syphilis. People said, well, that's fashionable. Love it. And they started doing that. Too. I'm in. So there you go. That's like I'm convinced that that uh, 90s rapper Nelly just had like. A cat scratch on his nose or something. Yeah. And was wearing that Band-Aid and people were like, oh, that's so hip. A man. Because it's how the kids talked then. Yeah, they did. Wacky kids. And now, that thing in the middle. All right, here's some weird facts about your body. I think that we should also say we're getting these from a list uh, that we have not fact-checked. So let's call them facts. (laughs) (laughs) What's on the internet? It must be real. Um... (laughs) Number five, most of the dust particles in your house are actually dead skin. Who doesn't know that? Mm. Number four, women blink nearly twice as often as men. Number three, babies are born without kneecaps. Ew, is that true? Yeah, I didn't know that. They appear between the ages of two and six. What? How are they crawling around without kneecaps? I don't know. But now every time I see that, I'm going to cringe. Number two. Every time you lick a stamp, you're consuming one-tenth of a calorie. Not me. You don't lick stamps or envelopes. No, I don't. Does that go back to the Ryerson threat? No, it's gross. I'm not <laughs> licking stationary. That's just not who I am as a person. And number one, our eyes are always the same size from birth, but our nose and ears never stop growing. I don't believe that at all. Sort your sizes. Sort your sizes. This thing on the internet says it. The Box of Oddities with Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth. I'm just looking for the Bob Ross thing. On on the Calm app? Yeah. Yeah. We love the Calm app, and we are so thrilled to have Calm as a member of our family of sponsors here on the Box of Oddities. Calm. C-A-L-M. 
Sleepmedicine.com is the number one app to help you sleep, meditate, and relax. One of the things that we do at the beginning of a new year is resolutions. And so often those are for our body. We want to eat better. We want to lose weight. We want to maybe start learning new things. We We have so many goals. But how often do you do something that's good for your state of mind? And that's where I've really found the Calm app to be incredibly helpful. Um, I've set up reminders where basically the Calm app says, hey, have you taken time today to like chill the frig out? Now, there's a misconception that uh, you need to be experienced in meditation. Right, like you have to be a yoga master or something. No, look, Calm makes it easy for you to just relax. And, And meditation can be part of it, but it's not the only part of it. Even if you don't meditate, Calm is a great app to have, especially if you have trouble going to sleep. I just read an article that said that the average person, it takes them seven minutes to fall asleep. In my case, it's more like two hours before I got the Calm app. Right, and one of the things that we found to be so helpful are the sleep stories. They're like bedtime stories for adults designed to help you relax before you doze off. So you can head to the lavender fields of France with Stephen Fry or explore New Zealand with Jerome Flynn from Game of Thrones. Or the paths of Machu Picchu which is one of my favorite sleep stories. And Bob Ross is in there too. Oh, with his happy little trees. <laughs> and if you head to calm.com slash oddities, you'll get 25% off a Calm premium subscription, which includes hundreds of hours of programming. Guided meditations on issues like anxiety and stress and focus. There's a brand new meditation every day called the Daily Calm. And of course, our beloved sleep stories. Get unlimited access to all of Calm's content today at calm.com slash oddities. It's just for Box of Oddities listeners. 25% off Calm premium subscription at calm, C-A-L-M dot com slash oddities. C-A-L-M dot com slash oddities. For a limited time, Box of Oddities listeners get 25% off a Calm premium subscription at calm.com slash oddities. That's C-A-L-M dot com slash oddities. Give yourself the gift of calm. And a happy and healthy 2019. Oh my gosh, I almost said 2018. What is wrong with me? You better start meditating more. This is a test of the Box of Oddities emergency broadcast system. This is only a test. Had this been an actual box of oddities, I'd be talking a lot faster. All right, we got an amazing email earlier, and I just have to share this. It's uh, from a guy. He and his family are actually coming to the show in Nashville. We're super excited uh, to meet them. And he was saying that uh, they've been working on a research project at the museum that he is a living history curator at, which sounds... Dream job. Dream job. <laughs> so he's been listening to the the podcast for background noise, and he was uh, listening to the episode about the parasitic twin and the teratoma, and it reminded him of an incident that happened that he shared with us. Okay. <clears throat> My whole family, he writes, parents, sister, and her family, the whole shebang, having dinner together, and baby stories are being shared. In the middle of the happy and funny stories from many generations, stories of a few miscarriages in the family came up. Hmm. And my mom, who was sitting directly opposite from me, locks eyes and says, I wonder what your twin would have been like. Oh, no. That'll stop you in your tracks. I asked for some more clarification since, well, 
you'd think I'd have known about this by now. My family had always said that the doctors had told my mom that I was supposed to be twins, but they passed it off like it was a joke about how like big a baby I was, and that's why Ma got so big. Ah. Turns out, nope, I had a twin that was there and then wasn't. What? Apparent- Apparently, they were absorbed back by my mom and me. There wasn't a lot known about it back in the early 80s when I was born, but more is known now. It's called vanishing twin syndrome or being a womb twin, womb twin survivor. It's another way to have two different types of DNA in one person, which I think can be called chimerism or mosaicism, like that mom you talked about not technically being the genetic mother of her own right, kids. Right, 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 right. I figure if absorbing slash eating your twin doesn't qualify for me flying my freak flag, yeah. I don't know what does. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for an amazing show. You make plain work days hella awesome. <laughs> thank you. And thank you, Matt. Oh, my gosh. That was the best thing I've read in a while. His name was Matt? Yeah. I, I just picture Matt when he was uh, an embryo in the womb, just nom, 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 eating his brother or sister. Hey, when you're hungry and you wake up in the middle of the night, you have to have something to snack on. Otherwise, you won't get back to sleep again. If there's anyone who can attest to that, it's you. How many times have you come out in the kitchen at 3 o'clock in the morning and I'm standing over the sink eating a can of Pringles? The answer is many. Last night, in fact. Yeah. No, last night was uh, buttery crackers. Yeah, yes, that's right. I was enjoying some midnight elfin goodness. What you got for me? What? What you what what you what you got for me? What 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 you got for me? So that would be my question to you. The first time I went to Mexico, we went to a uh, Mayan ruin. I, I struggle even calling it a ruin because it's so amazing and magical. But it was uh, Chichen Itza. Hmm. And uh, we went into their ball court. And I have many photos of just the beautiful stonework in there. And it's just gorgeous. And I was always terribly interested in it and what it was for. And I was going through some of those photos not long ago. And it kind of re-sparked my interest in the the ball games that they played. Yeah, and these were big these were big deals, right? They were big they deals. They were almost like their version of Roman Colosseum type of activities. Yeah. Um I've always found this topic very fascinating. I'm so glad you're doing this. It's super interesting. And I started doing research for this and I started to feel a little bit like I was doing a school project. Like um I don't know. <laughs> it, like Mesoamerican games by Cat. <laughs> Different versions of ball games were played in Mesoamerica <laughs> from very early times. The oldest ball court yet discovered was built around 1400 BC. <laughs> like, but uh, all of a sudden, I'm back in seventh grade. <laughs> that was great. Thanks. Okay, so. I, there are so many different versions of games that were played uh, during this period and and for for many, many years. So it's hard to pinpoint like this is the game that we're going to talk about or um, so so I'm gonna kind of do an overview of okay. Mesoamerican games and, and Colombian in particular pre-Columbian games and and this is um, these were all games that were played on the same type of field similar. Okay. For sure. So the earliest known rubber balls are uh, even older than 
1400 BC, and they were found at an Olmec sacrificial bog. The Olmec are therefore a strong candidate for inventing the game, why having they, invented these why games. Why are they sacrificing rubber balls? Well, I think it's the same thing as, you know, anything else. You know, what the, with the Egyptian tombs, you put in the tomb what was important to them. Okay. Sometimes it's cats, sometimes... <laughs> Maybe they just hit the ball over the fence into the bog. Like a scene from the Sandlot. That's possible And there was a too. big dog in there. <laughs> Chopper. Sick balls. The game continued to be popular among pre-Columbian civilizations for 3,000 years and was still played by the Aztecs when the Spanish arrived. Wow. One of these versions is called Picatoc. And the ruins of Chichen Itza in, Mexico's, in Mexico has the biggest Picatoc court in all of Mesoamerica. It is 545 feet long and 225 feet wide. I don't know what that means, but I remember it being big. Yeah. The great ball court of Chichen Itza has its walls covered with the carved depictions um, of the game. Near the court, there's a stone platform, decorated, uh, beautifully carved stone. It really is remarkable. And it becomes, I almost had like a sensory overload because there was so much information and so much artistic work put into this this place um, plus it was very very hot that day <laughs> so okay so most games we don't know the rules of but we do have ideas of how it was played or how they were played so the objective of the games were to get a ball through a narrow stone hoop placed on the court wall often as high as 20 feet from the ground wow So the ball had to be kept in the air by hitting it with the hips, thighs, or upper arms, or bouncing it off of the stone walls. How how big was the ball? And that can vary. From what I've read, um, most of the games that were played, like in the Yucatan Peninsula, Mm -hmm. would have been played with something about the size of a basketball. Okay. But there were games that were played in other parts uh, that might have been as small as a softball. It sounds kind of like a combination of soccer and basketball and football, American football. Kind of. Um, the rule was, though, that you were not allowed to use your hands or your feet. Like like soccer, as we call it in the U.S., or football, the rest of the world calls it. Sure. Um, but... you What, you weren't allowed to use your hands or feet? Okay, never mind. That doesn't make sense, because you use your feet. Never mind. Um, yeah. Okay. You can only, yeah, your head, your shoulders, your elbows, your wrists, your hips. The hips were a big one. Okay. They use those a lot. And um, so there's this this rubber ball, but it's not a soft ball. It's a it's made from like the tr- rubber tree rubber. So it's, it's hard and sturdy. It's not a tether ball. ball. No, no. No. Okay. <laughs> it's not a four square ball, guys. Four square. By the way, I was the king of four square in sixth grade. I played full contact Foursquare. Oh, yeah. I actually uh, hurt my back as a child playing Foursquare because I was so serious about it. <laughs> and then uh, later in life, I actually left uh, soccer. I didn't. I played soccer up until uh, seventh grade when my coach actually mocked me because I was so hardcore and was like, well, if we could all just try as hard as Katie does, you know, mm-hmm. then we'd all be a better team. And, you know, and I was like, I'm not playing with you anymore. And that was it. Yeah. Your soccer days were done. My soccer day. Mock me once. That's it. And then I'm you, done. And then you went on to dominate the four. <laughs> then you went on to dominate the professional four square circuit. <laughs> 
All right. So um, let's talk about the uh, the rubber tree and uh, and how that ball was made. So since the rubber tree was not found in the highlands of the Aztec Empire, what they would do is make like treks to go get rubber and they would carry these 16,000 pounds of rubber, the places where they needed to make these balls for various gaming events. The Aztecs actually referred to the people who lived where those trees were as the rubber people. Really? Which seems a little insulting to me. Like, you know, this is what you're good for. You're the rubber people. That's right. You're a rubber band man. (laughs) The the name has since been applied to the ancient Olmec civilization because their abandoned ruins were found in the same region. And okay, so... Depictions of Picatock show that the ball was, uh, like we talked about, as big as a basketball today. And players would wear protective padding around their waists and on one shin and one forearm. Otherwise, the the solid rubber ball could severely injure them. The balls were made from the rubber from cow cocoa trees and um depictions of picatock show that uh the ball could cause serious injury there were bruising there's reports and i i hesitate to say reports but spanish chronicler diego duran stated that some bruises were so severe that they had to be sliced open because <gasps> the pressure from the the, the hematoma <gasps> was causing okay he also noted that some players were even killed uh, by the ball hitting them in the face or the stomach My they're God. sturdy balls the padding was actually called yokes and they were made of cotton stuffed into wooden frames that they would latch onto themselves and hmm. and kind of uh, hip shimmy the, okay. the balls yeah. sure. you, you get it there's nothing like hip shimmying the balls uh yeah in the post-classical period, the Maya began placing vertical stone rings in the center of each side of that wall, and the innovation continued into later Toltec and Aztec cultures. So Pocatok games would go on for, in, for a long time without interruption, sometimes even days. Without interruption. Right, because... There was no three-second rule. They wouldn't end the game until someone got got the ball through the hoop and it was you know you're hitting a rubber ball off of your hip trying to get it into a stone circle 20 feet in the air i can see where that would take some it time it takes days so in some forms of this game as soon as that happened once it was like game's over this person wins we're done so a lot of people did play for fun, but it was also a way for groups to settle conflicts between warring uh, noblemen. And what's more, uh, rec- recovered sources indicate that uh, the losing side's leader and sometimes the whole team were killed and sacrificed to the gods. That's the part I remember the most about the stories that losers get killed. So I'm getting most of this information from uh, amatravel.ca chichenitsaruins.org and of course our friend Wikipedia. For the Maya, as I mentioned, Picatock was more than just a challenging game. They believed that it was necessary to play the game for their own survival. The ball game provided an opportunity to show devoutness to the gods by sacrificing captured kings and or high lords or the losing opponent of the game. Sure. Sometimes the winner of the game. In the Aztec version, points were gained if the ball was hit off the uh, opposite sides 
of the wall. So it, each team had a wall, and that was how you scored points. Okay. Rather than getting it through that circle hole thing, they, they weren't just making the rules up as they went along. Like like I did as a kid playing wiffle ball in the driveway. Hit it off the garage window. It's a double. If it's in the apple tree, it's a home run. <laughs> it's it was exactly like that. They okay. even said the word garage just like that garage it was a it was a glorious time for the aztecs oh my when they talked about garages my canadian heritage is showing (laughs) garage not garage so the aztec game drew passionate support from huge crowds often accompanied by large-scale betting people would lose their clothes their food they even sold children and themselves into slavery to bet on these games to bet on these games holy crap the spanish eventually banned the game um, not just because of the large crowds and because it was you know destroying families and lives uh, but because the ball court became a place of sacrifice and they wanted it to become more of a serious arena so there are a couple different ways depending on which region you're in and uh, what, what sources you're citing that you are killed some say decapitation was the the method of choice disembowelment uh, is depicted if that's not a motivation to get that rubber ball through the hoop i can't imagine what would be there's actually something on one of the courts that's referred to as a skull rack um so you would be uh killed and then slid down a rack uh, ah. to hold your skull. So it was kind of like... Um, divisional like championship all- banner. Oh, I was going to say olives on a toothpick. Oh, okay. But yeah, it's kind of like both both of those things. Uh, so their blood would uh, pool out of them and be food for the gods. Um, yay. The Maya version of this game, uh, which is called Pits, was probably somewhat different from the Aztec one. Uh, another d- notable difference was that the walls of the Mayan ball courts had sloping sides, which made the it perhaps easier to keep it in play. Maybe not so many deaths. Uh, in ritual games, the leader of the losing team would be sacrificed, and his skull would be used as the core around which a new rubber ball would be created. Oh, my God. Yeah. I did not know that. So, so you're kicking the loser's head around in the next game. Yeah. Oh my God. No wonder that hurt. I can see where that would be a serious bruise. That part to me doesn't seem like it makes sense or it doesn't align in my brain with the sacrificial nature of it. That just sounds like mockery. Yeah. You're just <laughs> fucking with them then at that point. Can you imagine if that was the end result? Of the Super Bowl. <laughs> We're going to put your head inside a ball. Yep. Oh, I wish I had some sort of football knowledge and I would make some sort of slam towards some sort of team that I didn't like as much yeah. as some other team. But the thing is, it would be offensive to somebody, no matter what team you chose. So just insert the team you hate the most there. Yeah. And make your own joke. Sport. Ball. So when the Spanish shut those games down in, Mm -hmm. what do you say, the 1600s, it was because they wanted it to become a more serious sport or they were afraid there were ticket scalpers or (laughs) maybe they wanted to set up some concessions and get a piece of the action. Uh, It was also a problem with the crowds that these games hold. Uh, It was taken over the city. How how big a crowd would would they? I I don't have that uh, information. But this was the focal point of society at the time it was like the the football world cup grand slam championship (laughs) it's not a thing hoops (laughs) 
Outside of baseball, you have no interest in sports whatsoever. I mean, I like playing them. I just yeah. don't know anything about them. Okay. I have, though, discovered that I think I would enjoy watching live basketball. Yeah. Um, it feels like something like on TV, it tires me, but I think, I think I would enjoy it in person. And I think we should go to a basketball game. Yeah, I love live basketball games. They are snacks. Yeah. Oh, there are snacks. Okay. You're I, in. Yeah. Okay. All right. You can get snacks at any major sporting event though, sweetie. What about bowling tournaments? Sure. Beer and hot dogs. All right. I'm officially a sport fan now. <laughs> Congratulations. That's just who I am. Yeah. That's how I'm going to express myself from now on. You're going to get a shirt that says sports. I'm a sport, a sport lady. Okay, sport lady. The Box of Oddities. On your phone, twice a week. We appreciate you joining us, you beautiful freak. You can reach us at curator at theboxofoddities.com. And please do, because we love hearing from you, and uh, we get some amazing stories, and we are kicking around the idea of another uh, You Do Our Work For Us uh, episode. Right. Uh, so if you have fun things that you want to send to us, send us the, those send us those fun things. Yeah, stories, that uh, things that have happened to you. Uh, we love that stuff. So that's it. We look forward to seeing you again on Monday. Until then, keep flying that freak flag. Fly it proudly, you beautiful freak. And so, let it be known that the box of oddities belongs to you, and its fate is in your hands. The box of oddities commits to the telling of stories, stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. We wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. TheBoxOfOddities.com On Facebook at Facebook.com slash Box of Oddities Podcast. On Twitter at Box of Oddities. And Instagram at Box of Oddities Podcast. Copyright 2019. All rights reserved. If you like this podcast, can we recommend another one? It's called Big Picture Science. You can hear it wherever you get your podcasts, and its name tells part of the story. The big picture questions and the most interesting research in science. Seth and I are the hosts. Seth is a scientist. I am Molly, and I'm a science journalist. And we talk to people smarter than us, and we have fun along the way. The show is called Big Picture Science, and as Seth said, you can hear it wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that because you're already listening to a podcast.